And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, September 12th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, the nation's funder of legal aid services gets a new inspector general and we'll meet him. Plus, VA hospitals do pretty darn well in a national survey. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. First, tens of thousands of the Postal Service's rural carriers had a rocky start to September after a UPS payroll error resulted in incomplete and, in some cases, even missing paychecks. The Postal Service offered a Band-Aid solution, giving impacted carriers money orders roughly in the amount of their take-home pay. But the union representing rural carriers says not good enough. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has the latest. And what exactly happened here, Jory? So this payroll error happened with the Postal Service's systems, and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association estimates that 53,000 of its members were impacted. The vast majority of them were non-career rural carriers that are relief carriers. They fill in for people when they are sick or away or otherwise not available. I spoke with the national president of that union, Don Mastin, caught up with him to see how this issue has been playing out. This affected the September 1st paycheck for impacted carriers. And he said that this payroll error caused more of a headache than any other IT issues he can remember. In my career, I've never seen one this large ever before. So it was a pretty monumental task to get make sure everybody got paid. So it was a pretty large number of employees and the system basically didn't have the information to input the way it needed to get them paid correctly. Wow, that's a pretty big error and something you would think couldn't happen because these things are totally automated. I mean, it's not like someone's sitting there and running a check writing machine. So what did USPS do to resolve it or at least carry it over till they could fix it? Yeah, well, like you said in the lead here, Tom, USPS decided to issue what they call a salary advance, which is just a money order that is roughly the amount of their take-home pay. Everyone got 65% of their net income, which is when you do all the deductions, roughly what they should be getting anyway. Everyone is in that same boat with that deduction. If they chose to go with the money order route, they could just wait for the next payday to get both the current paycheck and the one they were waiting on. And so this is, you know, a situation that is, you know, obviously troubling for carriers. I did see a couple of pay stubs where they did see that zero dollars and zero cents come on the first of September. And of course the USPS is going to have the obligation to pay the taxes and the social security if that's applicable for those employees at the point that they get their system back up and running. Right. And that's kind of the current state of play now is that it's it's good that carriers were able to get some sort of pay on the first if it wasn't their regular paycheck. But one thing that we heard from the union here is that it didn't apply to deductions if they had, you know, things automatically deducted from their paycheck, like a, a mortgage payment or a rent payment, anything that is impacted from that direct deposit. It fell down to the carriers to make sure that those automatic deductions were covered elsewhere in their financial situation. Wow. So is this thing resolved at this point? What we've heard from Mastin is that, yes, you know, they expect for the September 15th paycheck that impacted rural carriers should get that paycheck as promised. And we have not heard an updated statement yet from the Postal Service on that end of things. But Mastin did say that this is not an easy thing to sort out, particularly for the vast majority of people, these people who are the part-time relief carriers. 
regular carriers, that's a lot easier to streamline process because it's one route, one carrier. But when you have the lead replacements, they may have worked on, you know, route one for one day, route two for a different day, provided auxiliary assistance for a few hours on a different route another day. So they have multiple certificates that would have to be processed. Yeah, so it's more complicated for rural carriers because they're not paid a flat salary in the way that the city carriers are that have the same route and the same shift day after day. So the rural carriers, as he said, it varies, and that's part of the reason that some of them are getting a pay cut and some getting more money under their new payroll system altogether. Right, right. Well, that ties back to some of the issues that have recently come up with particularly rural carriers. Back in the spring, we saw that two-thirds of rural carriers did see pay cuts with the implementation of the Rural Route Evaluated Compensation System, or RREX. That is something where people saw major cuts in their pay in the order of 10000 or $15,000 in their annual income. And as a result, these same rural carriers, several thousand of them have led an effort to decertify their union in protest of what they've been seeing and upset there. Yeah, maybe Rx ought to be renamed T-Rex because of all the damage and scaring it's causing all over the place. And there are other complications, though, from this payroll issue, too, besides taxes. Right, right. Well, well, like I said, Tom, you know, the automatic deductions, people who had, you know, rent or mortgage payments, car payments, things of that nature that are just automatically deducted from their direct deposit. That's something that they now have to cover. You know, I did hear from a couple of rural carriers who were upset with this issue. One rural carrier, particularly in Georgia, he said that this is the eighth time this year that he's experienced pay issues of one kind or another. Sometimes it's been his supervisor incorrectly inputting his hours. And this latest one, he said that, you know, we heard that for the vast majority of people, they did get those money orders if they requested them. This particular carrier said that his station, his local post office did not issue those payments. And now we are facing a holiday season where mail volumes might be up, their package volumes might be up. You know, we've got Thanksgiving and Halloween. Oh, yeah. And then there's Christmas after that at some point. So pretty soon it's going to be picking up. The leaves will be falling. And so is this going to be resolved? And will the holiday season be okay on the payroll front, both because of the volume of work they'll be doing and because of the fact that people want to be paid on their own for holiday season? Right. I think the expectation on both parties here is that this was a one-off glitch with the payroll situation. But in terms of compensation for these rural carriers looking forward, if they're looking to pick up some extra Sunday shifts, that is now available to them. The USPS and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association, they signed a memo of agreement allowing full-time regular carriers to pick up these Sunday shifts. That's usually left up to the part-time relief carrier workforce, but because of workplace shortages, because of the vast demand for these Sunday shifts and the supply of carriers able to carry it out, these full-time rural carriers can now pick that up. Well, we'll see what happens because Christmas is a Monday this year, so a lot of people might prefer to work on Sunday and they won't have people to cover the Monday shift. What Mastin told me about this is that this is something that is very popular for rural carriers. He says he actually gets more calls and complaints when this does not happen, this agreement, to have regular carriers pick up these Sunday shifts. And do we know whether this payroll system that had that glitch is operated by USPS directly or do they farm it out to a contractor? That's actually not clear. We haven't gotten a lot of answers from USPS directly on this, just simply that they acknowledge the problem and then they've been uh, trying to address it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, 
VA hospitals do pretty darn good in a national survey. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Veterans Health Administration recently participated, for the first time ever, in an annual survey of hospital quality conducted by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. VA did well. The survey is known as the Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems. I spoke about it with VA's top medical official, Dr. Sharif Elnahal. We started with the fact that this is not a VA survey. It's actually a standard rating that is released every year by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And for the first year ever, VA medical centers are included in the same overall hospital quality ratings as the rest of American hospitals. And we're really proud of how we scored uh, compared to our counterparts. Yeah. How did you do? Give us the top line here. Absolutely. So VA medical centers overall scored at 67%, scored either four or five stars on this overall hospital quality rating out of five stars, compared to less than half of our civilian sector counterparts. And that wasn't a surprise to us. Study after study over many years has shown that VA care is at least the same, if not better, in many areas. But for the first time, veterans can go to the CMS website and see us stacked against all of our civilian hospital counterparts, and we're really proud of how we did. I'm interested, though, in this statistics here because do you get a self-selecting sample of people who are going primarily to VA that may not go to Mass General or whatever? It's actually the same standard survey that anyone discharged from a hospital gets across the country. So it's really an unbiased sample because it's really every veteran who's hospitalized in our system and it's patients overall who are discharged from civilian hospitals taking the same survey. And what are some of the questions? What are some of the qualities of hospitals that are specifically in there? Absolutely. So one component of this rating has to do with patient experience. Again, those surveys that every veteran and civilian gets when they're discharged. It's also really critical hospital quality and patient safety metrics, things like infections that someone might get in a hospital, other measures of patient harm. It's also the degree to which we have to readmit veterans into our hospitals as well as in civilian hospitals uh, because their full set of concerns and conditions weren't fully addressed. And so there's other components, but the bottom line is it's the same rating that every hospital is assessed on in the country, and VA scores really well uh, when you compare us directly. Now, earlier you said this was the first time that VA facilities were included, so you don't really have a historic baseline yet of how you're doing over time. We don't, but we do have other assessments that have compared us to include peer-reviewed medical journal articles, real scientific comparisons between VA care and civilian care. And again, those overwhelmingly show that VA care is at least the same, if not better, in many areas. Were you able to identify if 67% said it was four out of five and so on? Are you able to tell almost like the FEVS scores for employees, which ones are good at the top of the game at VA within the VA system and which ones might need a little help? Yes, we can absolutely tell that. And Martinsburg VA is one example in our region right here at a national capital region, scoring five out of five stars. 67% of our medical centers score in one of the top two ratings. But of course, we do have three, two, and one star medical centers as well. And for those places, we use this as an opportunity to continuously improve. That's the spirit by which we undertake all of our quality and patient safety efforts. And so we're going to be reaching out to those medical centers who need help and getting better while celebrating and encouraging 
encouraging those who scored well to continue scoring well. That's what veterans in this country deserve. And how fine-grained can you understand what it is they need to improve? For example, they could have a terrific intake and people feel great about checking in, but the surgeons aren't so good and somebody, you know, whatever, made a mistake versus, geez, this was really lousy coming in the front door, but my goodness, the doctors were great or the nurses were great. Yeah. Well, the rating, fortunately, is very comprehensive in all of its components. All of it is transparent. Anybody can go on the CMS website and look at the components. And of course, our teams across the country are doing the same to figure out exactly what they need to work on. So for example, in the patient experience category, we can break that down by the exact questions uh, that veterans answer to include cleanliness of the hospital environment, communication with nurses, communication with doctors, noise at night, do veterans get to sleep when they're hospitalized? And so so we can really hone in on what we need to improve, not just for the one to three star medical centers, but even the four and five star all have things to work on. And the spirit is, again, continuous improvement. And from your standpoint as chief of medicine, basically, you know, undersecretary for health within a given hospital or center, the functions have different channels. That is to say, the administrative function, the checking in and so forth, nursing, medicine. How do you get them to maybe integrate with one another such that that total experience seems integrated, at least from the patient standpoint. Absolutely. Uh, everybody has a part to play in making sure that we continuously improve on behalf of veterans. The accountability, of course, starts with our leaders, but where the leaders are continuously getting input and feedback and interacting directly with the front line, we see those hospitals perform better and better. And so, of course, how our teams integrate and perform and work well together has everything to do with how these ratings turn out. And the ratings, of course, are what people say. And when they fill out a survey, you must have internal metrics to know, you know, how long did the intake take? How many infections per 10,000 beds and this kind of thing? Can you correlate those findings with the metrics that the VA keeps internally? Absolutely. We have many things that we measure that are not necessarily included in the CMS ratings, uh, but the CMS ratings are also comprehensive. So it's not just the surveys that veterans take after they're hospitalized. These are also, you know, longstanding metrics that we've reported to CMS for some time and report to ourselves internally. And we use all of that data to improve care on behalf of veterans. But overall, you're pleased with how VA came out in this latest round of CMS studies. We are pleased with it, and we're trying to use it as an opportunity to gain the trust of more and more veterans, given a really important law that the president signed last year called the PACT Act, which allows us in particular to expand services and benefits to veterans exposed to toxic substances. And a really important deadline that I want every veteran to be aware of is September 30th of this year, just about a month from now, when a really critical enrollment opportunity will expire for veterans who are discharged from service uh, before October 1st, 2013 and served in one of the post-Gulf War or post-9-11 conflicts. So if you're a veteran who served in Central Command during that period of time, was discharged before October 1st, 2013, you have an opportunity to directly enroll in VA healthcare by going to va.gov slash PACT or calling 1-800-MY-VA-411. I know you had to get that in. And also the fact is that you have gotten about a million applications coming through the VBA side. Have they hit the hospitals yet? Have they hit the medical side yet? The ones that have been signing up for the PACT Act so far? 
They are. In fact, you mentioned more than 1 million claims have already been filed with our Veterans Benefits Administration, and we've enrolled more than 100,000 veterans in a population that we identified as soon as the law was signed, who we thought uh, could benefit and enroll in VA healthcare. This is a group of folks that were not enrolled in VA healthcare when the law was signed, and we've enrolled more than 130,000 of them in the year since it was signed. And so we're going to keep making sure we get the word out about the PACT Act, about the many new opportunities to enroll and try to get as many veterans as possible to go into the new doors into our system. And by the way, getting back to the survey, you probably can also gauge or view the quality, perceived quality of institutions nearby the VA medical centers that might be part of community care. And that must be useful information to know, hey, well, you can go there too, but you know, we're better or whatever. That's right. For the first time, because we're included in these CMS ratings, veterans can search by region, by city, wherever they live, and they can see the ratings for VA medical centers, but also civilian hospitals and do their own comparison. Dr. Sharif Elnahal is the Undersecretary for Health at the Veterans Health Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to the survey at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, retirement. It's easy to think about, more difficult to pull off, though. But first, the nation's funder of legal aid services gets a new inspector general. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. A seasoned overseer of federal grant making has returned to government. After a stint at a large services contractor, Tom Yatsko recently became the inspector general at the Legal Services Corporation, one of the more unusual federal structures. And he joins me now, Mr. Yatsko. Good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And let's talk about the Legal Services Corporation. It's kind of a unique animal. You might think it's part of the Justice Department, but actually it's independent and it's not precisely an agency. No, it's really not. It was set up by Congress almost 50 years ago. The anniversary is next year, so everyone's you know very excited about that. But it's technically a private nonprofit corporation chartered by Congress. It's largely federally funded, like 90 plus percent. It provides grants to civil legal aid organizations, you know, for things like you know housing, family issues, consumer issues. There are very strict limitations on what LSC funds can be used for. Pretty much anything controversial, you know, abortion, lobbying, redistricting, you know, things like that. It was, you know, set up to be as apolitical as possible. And there are 130 grantees all across the country, including in U.S. territories. And it's run by a board of directors of 11 members who are nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. And no more than six can be of one party. So it's also was intended to be a bipartisan board. And then later on, just like some other kind of designated federal entities like Amtrak, Pension Benefits Guarantee Corporation, the Fed was required to have an inspector general. So, you know, what I do is just like what the HUD IG would do or the Justice IG, for example, would do, you know, efficiency, effectiveness, investigate allegations of fraud and so forth. And just to get back to the mission, so the grantees then provide legal services to the poor for dealing with certain issues? Correct. Uh, For civil legal issues for low-income Americans, generally 125% of the federal poverty limit and below. And yes, the grants go to state and local-based legal aid organizations that are, like I said, all over the country and ranging from very large ones in places like L.A. or New York 
to, you know, pretty small organizations. Can they be units within law firms that want to do close to pro bono type of work? I think they're separate legal aid organizations. I'm new enough not to know too much about the intricacies, although I'm looking forward to getting out into the field this fall and really seeing how it all plays out at ground level. But there's also, you know, a big push for pro bono work as well. And I think LSC actually funds some activities in that regard. And being a veteran of grant-making oversight, and we'll get into some of your background a little Mm -hmm. bit in a moment, but what are the special oversight requirements for grants versus, say, contract-making, which is the other big spending channel? Yeah, you know, when you're, you know, we're responsible for LSE oversight, and they're, you know, responsible for monitoring their grantees. So, you know, some of the things that we find are, you know, typical for any grant-making organization that, you know, there are people... Segregation of duties, misuse of credit cards, of course, you know, not using grants for authorized purposes. LSE has a whole set of regulations at at Title 45 that grantees must follow. So, you know, those are the criteria that we use, you know, just like any grant making agency would have their regulations. Subrecipient monitoring is always an issue. You know, when you get down, you know, a level below the grantees and LSC has sub subrecipient grantees, you know, that's always been, you know, an issue everywhere I've worked, particularly grantees, you know, they're very passionate about the mission and what they do. And, you know, sometimes with the best of intention, things like internal controls, monitoring, adopting new practices, you know, are kind of secondary or even tertiary considerations. And I think that's what we add value is kind of, you know, lifting them out of the day-to-day in the weeds and identifying not just compliance issue in a, in a backward-looking way, but also like anticipating and advising them on, you know, ways to improve, ways to adopt promising practices that other agencies or organizations are using. And, you know, I think we can play, you know, a, a lot of value and not beyond just the traditional essential watchdog role. You know, that's something, you know, coming on as the new IG that I'm really, you know, pushing as part of my vision. Sure. We're speaking with Tom Yatsko. He is the newly appointed Inspector General at the Legal Services Corporation. And what attracted you to come back to government? You worked at Deloitte and Touche for a long time and before that at USAID as the IG, Assistant Inspector General. And you've been involved with SIGI and all of the other structures. Yeah. Tell us about Deloitte and what made you want to come back to government. Deloitte experience was interesting and I really liked it. And it was, you know, I just thought it was time to try something new. And I also, you know, I was working on, you know, internal audit at Deloitte and also helping, you know, federal clients uh, with audit remediation and kind of preventing problems that GAO or, or their IG would find. But, you know, there is that this term at Deloitte called what's your North Star. And so I just figured, you know, the IG world is what I do. And I just, you know, started seeing, okay, what IG vacancies might be out there. And LSC came into my life and, you know, I'm glad it did. And everything worked out well. And, you know, it's great now to have, you know, the top job to also move beyond just auditing and evaluation, but have all the, you know, investigations and the hotline and everything. And uh, yeah, it just seemed very exciting and a way that I would want to spend the rest of my career. Got it. And what are the dollar levels that LSC is overseeing that you're overseeing LSC overseeing? LSC's federal appropriation this year was $560 million. 
And it, it does get little pots of money here and there. So it got some pandemic funding. It got some money in the last few natural disaster supplemental grants, you know, which create a lot of legal issues for you know, low-income Americans with floods and hurricanes and, 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 and so forth. So it, it ticks up above that a bit. But it's 500 to 600 million a year. And certainly the needs are much greater than that in the last budget request, you know, uh, LSC management asked for 1.5 billion to be able to cover what was envisioned in the LSC Act back in the 70s. So the idea of the justice gap, as they say, you know, is is a, is a real thing. Sure. And getting back to your own career too, you have been in a lot of places, including GAO, yeah. which yeah. is the congressional branch. It all has right. an oversight theme, but uh, you started out at the kind of the granddaddy of oversight. Well, a lot of people do that. You know, I'm sure you've, you've heard in, you know, in the different interviews you've done over, over many years, you know, people kind of go from GAO into the IG community since it's sort of like the IGs really are almost like mini GAOs within the agency. You know, you do performance auditing, you're doing financial auditing and so forth. So you use all of the skills and experience you have. It's just a little more direct because of course, you know, you're, you're part of the agency. You know, you have independent safeguards and so forth, but you, you know, you're within it. That appealed to me when, you know, when I made the jump from GAO into and working at the several IGs that I worked at. And in the short time at the LSC, any horror stories yet? No. <laughs> yeah, the investigations are always laugh or cry situations when you see like, you know, the biweekly report of what, what everyone's working on. But no, the people have been great. The board of directors is very engaged. They have quarterly meetings uh, that are sort of two and a half day, really intense affairs. Some of it is publicly watchable because the Sunshine Act is one of the few federal laws that do apply to LSC. So, you know, so people can watch the proceedings there. But uh, no, no, no horror stories other than I'm really glad I did this and, and, and I'm excited to be back kind of doing, you know, what I love doing. And it's a great team, too, within the IG. Tom Yatsko is Inspector General at the Legal Services Corporation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Excited to do it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the LSC at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, retirement. It's easy to think about, more difficult to pull off. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In many ways, retirement after a federal career is all about the numbers. Do you have enough saved that, together with your annuity, you won't run out of money? In some ways, though, retirement is not about the numbers at all. There's also the danger of, well, being bored to death. Here with some non-monetary retirement advice, federal retiree and AG financial services owner Abe Grungold. Abe, good to have you back. Tom, thank you for having me on. Yes, Retirement is more than about just the numbers. You need to figure out what's important to you your first day of retirement. 
You have to plan for it, and you need to be flexible. That's the key, to be flexible. Well, let's talk about what's important to you, because for most people, you know, their family life, whatever form that is in, is maybe the most important thing. Sometimes it might be the second after their career and their work. But both of those things are what give people identity. And so you're losing 50% of what gave you your identity, which is your work and the associations there too. Tom, it's perfect that you mentioned this. A friend of mine this week, who is also a client, he says to me, Abe, I'm retiring December 31st, but I'm going to lose my identity you know, as a federal employee. And he has a pretty big position with the government. And I told him, I said, no, you're not losing your identity. You're going to create a new one. And you certainly can do a lot of things in retirement. A lot of people work full time doing something else and whatever makes them happy, whether it's opening up an antique store, working at Home Depot, I have a friend of mine who is going to be a farmer. He's going to be a farmer full-time. So you still can work full-time or part-time, and you just need to figure out if that is important to you. And some people don't work at all. You know, that idea of being a farmer reminds me of a line that the cowardly lion said in Wizard of Oz, the original version. The only question is, can somebody talk me out of this? But I guess he's going to go ahead. Does he have a tractor? He has it all. I've spoken to him about it. He has tractor. He has animals. He's been doing this part-time for 10 years. And this is what he wants to do in retirement. He's still young. And this is what he wants to do full-time. And even for me, I was planning my retirement And I was fearful of going from working full-time to doing nothing. So I started my own business four years prior to retirement. I wanted to make sure that I was going to be doing something in retirement. Yes. And so the question is, yeah, work, but you can also occupy your time not working. But yet I think people find that if they are unoccupied by work, it has to be more than trivial stuff. I mean, how many times can you get up and read the grape nuts box and then go, you know, whatever, walk to the corner or something? I mean, at some point, it has to be meaningful, even if it's not remunerative monetarily, those activities. Yes, it's perfect that you say that. It reminds me of the movie Groundhog Day when you get up every day in that movie and every day is the same. So certainly you don't want that. So what I did was I moved to a retirement community. And where I live now is just filled with various activities from sports to uh, social to other things like doing charity work. And I found that a retirement community, at least for me, was a perfect environment rather than being in my other home where I didn't have many activities to do on a day-to-day in retirement. Except pick out the Yadro statues and try to find ways to get rid of those because nobody wants them. (laughs) They're not worth two cents. (laughs) The the boomers will know what I'm talking about here. It is true. We downsized on many of our collectibles or tchotchkes, as we called them. 
And we found that they're just not important because our kids and our family just don't want them. Yep. Yeah, we went through that as well. And I guess uh, maybe the important thing in moving to a retirement community is making sure that your lot is not too close to the pickleball courts. The it, noise it, could it, drive you crazy in about 20 minutes. It's funny. Where I live, I think we have 15 pickleball courts. Everyone has their own individual home. And many of the people ride their golf cart to the pickleball court. And many of them are playing twice a day. Now, I ran into a guy the other day who I bowl with. I'm on the bowling club. And he says, I'm not playing pickleball because pickleball has the most injuries of any type of thing for seniors. And he says, I live alone. If I get injured, who's going to drive me to the supermarket? So he refuses to play pickleball. So you really have to think about all these variables that go on with every activity. Yeah, you don't want to become a cop, which is a casualty of pickleball, I guess, <laughs> in retirement. But there's also the idea, by the way, my guest is Abe Grungold. He's a retired federal manager himself, now owner of AG Financial Services. The idea of meaningful activities that have transcendence beyond, you know, just amusing yourself, whether it's pickleball or whatever the case might be. But there are a lot of learnings and experiences you might have gained as a long-term federal employee that volunteer organizations, charities, and so on could really avail themselves of. And you would find that your activities would have both identity and meaning. Yes. I have a friend who wants to volunteer mentoring kids, you know, life learning skills. I have another friend who's volunteering with the city and county food bank. So yes, volunteering is a very important thing because you're giving back. You make yourself feel good when you're doing these wonderful deeds. And you are also keeping yourself active and mentally active. Now, I do a financial literacy course free for college students. And I've done that where my daughter goes to college. So I do that as a way of giving back and helping the younger generation. So volunteering is a very important thing. And I want to return to the question of when you begin your retirement planning. In some ways, you begin it on your first day of work by signing up for TSP and maxing out your contributions because that's the foundation of everything is having enough money. But then in the closer to the ground planning, when you actually are at that age when you can see the end of your career, you don't wait till two weeks before. No, no. You should be planning your retirement activities three to five years beforehand. Because you could have one idea and then you realize you don't want to do that one and then you should think about another one. So you should have a couple ideas if you're going to work full-time or part-time, whether you're going to volunteer, whether you're going to play pickleball or golf or travel. Try to plan and have a flexible plan in the event that something doesn't work out for you that you can have a contingent plan to fall back on something else. So, yeah, I mean, I started out bowling this summer, and I decided I'm not going to bowl. I'm going to play golf in the wintertime. So you have to do what you feel is important. I guess you can go bowling with a golf ball, but you can't go golfing with a bowling ball. I did the bowling thing in the summer only because it is so hot in Florida 
I needed to find an activity. I found that golfing nine holes was just too strenuous in the heat. So you need to have a flexible plan. You can't do the same thing every day. After a while, it's going to become monotonous. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and having a good time at it. He's owner of AG Financial Services. And what's your handicap in bowling, by the way? Is there such a thing as a handicap in bowling? Well, you know, I am not that good of a bowler now that I'm a senior citizen. I was a pretty decent bowler years ago, but we still took third place, Tom. We took third place, even with my bad bowling. So we were just having fun. That's the important thing is having fun. Uh, A lot of people feel sports is competition, but I just enjoy doing it, keeping busy, having fun. Well, if you really want a challenge, switch to candle pins and see how many of those you can knock over. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. It wouldn't be much of a stretch to say the Defense Information Systems Agency, DISA, is in heavy research mode. Whether it's around cybersecurity tools or cloud services, DISA has no fewer than 14 ongoing or recently completed pilot initiatives. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me now with why this is going on. And, Jason, let's start with why. So many pilots at DISA. Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, Director of DISA, the commander of the Joint Force Headquarters Department of Defense Information Network. You know, he's an Air Force general. So, uh, obviously, Tom, he's big on pilots. All right, where's my, uh, where's my drum? Bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. Right. Thank you. Thank you. But really, in all seriousness, there's so much going on around cloud and cyber. I think what DISA is doing is really trying to understand what is out there. What are the capabilities that industry can bring to bear? How can they take advantage of those capabilities? And I think these pilot efforts, and we saw this, for instance, and we'll talk about this later with Thunderdome, their zero trust pilot. Okay, what can they actually do? And then how can they advance it? I think you're seeing that with cloud, you're seeing that with cyber, and you're seeing it with workforce, all, all these areas where DISA really wants to help DOD push that ball forward a little faster, a little better, a little more effectively, and most importantly, Tom, with less complexity. All right. And let's start with the cybersecurity pilots. Where is he going there? So Lieutenant General Skinner spoke at the recent Department of Air Force IT and Cyber Power Education Training Conference. This was late August. And he talked about no fewer than three pilots looking at internet protection boundaries. Now, Tom, he says that the goal here really is to change the way they are doing cybersecurity. Everybody usually hears we have 10 internet access points. You think, well, that's not that tough to manage. There's actually about 70. 10 that DISA controls, but there's 60-ish across the enterprise where there's an internet access into the, the, the broader internet. That makes it a lot more unmanageable. So we're working a pilot right now for security as a service at our boundary. That takes a lot of the, I'll say, convoluted and complex IAP that we have today and makes it less complex because it's all packaged into one. And so you don't have the collisions that you have today. And you know the other four-letter word, right, is JRSS. But I don't know if we could have made something more complex than we did that. You heard him say joint regional security stacks. Lieutenant General Skinner's talking about this program that started in 2013 and has really been widely criticized for not meeting operational goals. So what really he's doing, Tom, is saying, okay, how do we get rid of JRSS and move to a different set of pilots? And and I think what he's doing is is really looking at the pilots around a a couple different things. Automation of the validation of protections, uh, looking at security appliances, security apparatus, and really other capabilities throughout this environment. We have another pilot going on right now, and some of the services are actually working to and I think the Air Force is, is 
how do you automate the validation of your protection? The security appliances, the security um, apparatuses, all those capabilities that you have throughout the environment. Is it operating nominally? Because right now, we just say, well, well yeah, it is, because it's on. And it's protecting some things, but is it protecting everything that you want? And leveraging the TTPs that our adversary uses and that we know that they use, we're testing it through all the way from the boundary all the way to the endpoint. That's pretty powerful if we can get that moving. The third one is how do we virtually maneuver the domain itself? How do we use military deception or even deception writ, writ large to that if we do have a vulnerability that could be exploited, but somebody who's scanning from the external cannot see that? Well, those are all great questions, but I want to get back to that question of JRSS, the Joint Regional Security Stacks, which might be the worst-named thing ever. Aren't they replacing those anyway? They are, and I think a lot of these pilots that he's talking about is trying to say, okay, what capabilities can we use to not only replace them, but really be better than what JRSS was? And he says, you know, Skinner says the, the funding is already starting to dry up for JRSS, the money from Congress, the way Duty's using the money. But he's also clear, he understands that JRSS is a technology and a capability that's spread across a lot of different parts of the military. And he wants a smooth transition out of that. He wants to continue to say, hey, we need to get better. We need to be less complex and we're going to sunset it, but do it in a aggressive, but not, as he says, reckless way. And I think part of that the way they're doing this is through the Thunderdome Zero Trust Initiative. From what I've gathered, every single organization within the department and every mission partner is coalescing around these capabilities. Why wouldn't you leverage this contract? If nothing else, leverage the contract vehicle that has already been competed, has already been worked through to provide those capabilities. The Army this fall is doing a pilot with Thunderdome for the Western region. Ms. Goodwine and I have been talking as long as and, and Mr. Beauchamp on what about the Air Force? Can the Air Force leverage this as part of your architecture to move forward? But Thunderdome is more than that. So, so that's the OTA. If you look at the offerings that DISA has from identity, endpoint capabilities, about 133 of the 151, I may have those numbers uh, not completely accurate, of these, the DOD Zero Trust strategy activities are covered by what we are offering from a Zero Trust standpoint, well above the objective threshold. Again, that's Lieutenant General Skinner, the head of the Defense Information Systems Agency. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller and some of the other pilot projects that are not just on cyber and the joint stacks, etc., have to do with cloud which was kind of DISA's original provenance, really, in the cloud era. What have they got going there, Jason? DISA has been and continues to be really a leader around cloud services, providing this access to cloud services. We, they've mostly been sticking to the continental United States, CONUS. But in fact, uh, DISA has several ongoing or recently completed pilots around cloud services in their, their offering called Stratus for OCONUS outside the continental United States. Uh, they'll kick off two pilots in September, and they're looking for other services to test out this OCONUS cloud services. And in fact, just announced their first OCONUS cloud adoption effort back in August, a beta program for OCONUS region for Stratus that's currently available at Joint Base Pearl Harbor, Hickam in Hawaii. So I think, Tom, that's one example of where they're going. The other big thing around cloud, of course, is the JWCC, the Joint Warfighting Cloud Capability, and, and they're leading that effort. We have about 17 contracts already through the system. $200 million worth of uh, capability. 
We have about 45 that is in the system in some form or fashion, another 200 million. Nine of them are aligned to CJAD C2. In fact, we just awarded two for the Joint Staff J6 in relation to CJAD C2. The DOD CIO just put guidance out that says if you want secret or TS cloud, JWCC is your vehicle. No ifs, ands, or buts. On the unclassified side, there's going to be a continual evaluation of the contracts that you have today. As those contracts get, get recompeted, there's going to be evaluation that says, is JWCC the right answer or is the one that you have today um, or the one that, that you want to do best effort? Well, it sounds like they've got Jedi behind them anyway. Well, Jedi's been dead. They killed that with JWCC. And you also heard another uh, tidbit there and there, Tom, around JADC2, right? The Joint All-Domain Command and Control System. That is has to be connected to this OCONUS and CONUS clouds. This has to have that cyber tools. So everything is really falling in and around JADC2 as DOD continues to develop this effort. And JADC2 is not a DOD effort. It's an all-services, all-defense all agency effort because really it's connecting the ability to share command and control information. And, and this also gets a, to moving cloud to the edge. And I think there's a lot going on in the Army and the Air Force about uh, really pushing cloud to the edge and, and really testing sure. that out. Tom, one other thing I'll just want to highlight around what Skinner t talked about just recently is uh, several pilots are underway around something called Command Cyber Readiness Inspection. It's CCRI. It's a formal inspection process to increase accountability, the security posture of DOD's information networks, and really focused on command mission threat and vulnerability issues. Now, what Skinner says is this already has piloted CCRI 3.0 in three different uh, places, and he's using that experience really to reduce the mission risk and improve how they protect domains. So I think that's something else to look at. Look forward to as we head into 2024, uh, CCRI 3.0 is really going to help DoD focus on edge devices and really ensure that you know people don't have elevated privileges or they have a solid incident response plan. And I think you're going to see a lot more of agencies, defense services, military services going through the CCRI effort. I'll bet so, he's got Tom, some really classic PowerPoint slides on this one. <laughs> well, you know, the, did you see the founder of PowerPoint passed away recently? So uh, let's let's maybe take a moment of silence, Tom. Well, the military was his best customer. We'll let him rest in peace with, uh, you know, 57 boxes and 100 arrows and satellites and jets. Absolutely. I think uh, uh, Skinner and, and DISA has so much going on right now. Uh, cloud, cyber, and we didn't even get to the workforce. They have a workforce strategy coming out. Tom, I think there's a, a lot to look forward to as we head into 2024. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.